Okay. Got my large iPad with the large print for my old eyes. So here we go. <clears throat> it's getting bad. Okay. Um, Zechariah 6. Again, I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four chariots came out from between two mountains, and the mountains were mountains of bronze. The first chariot had red horses, the second black horses, the third white horses, and the fourth chariot dappled horses, all of them strong. Then I answered and said to the angel who talked with me, What are these, my lord? And the angel answered and said to me, These are going out to the four winds of heaven after presenting themselves before the Lord of all the earth. The chariot with the black horses goes toward the north country. The white ones go after them. And the dappled ones go toward the south country. When the strong horses came out, they were impatient to go and patrol the earth. And he said, go patrol the earth. So they patrolled the earth. Then he cried to me, Behold, those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. And the word of the Lord came to me, Take from the exiles Heldai, Tobijah, and Judea, who have arrived from Babylon, and go to the same day to the house of Josiah, the son of Zephaniah. Take from them silver and gold and make a crown, and set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. And say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he, has, he shall branch out from this place, and he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord, and shall bear royal honor, and shall sit and royal rule on his throne. And there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And the crown shall be in the temple of the Lord as a reminder to Helem, Tobijah, Jediah, and Hen, the son of Zephaniah. And those who are far off shall come and build and help to build the temple of the Lord. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. And this shall come to pass if you will diligently obey the voice of the Lord your God. Bill, very well done. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the sovereign ruler of the universe. You always accomplish what you set out to accomplish. No one and no thing ever stands in the way of your perfect and holy will. Help us to trust in your sovereign plan and will for the world, to take comfort in your great power, knowing that you are for us, you are not against us. Lord Jesus, you alone are our ultimate priest. You, on the cross, atoned for all of our sins, and we're so grateful. Empower us as a church family, to work together to continue to build your church by diligently obeying your voice and pursuing your mission. We ask that in this moment, Holy Spirit, that I would actually be somewhat useful to you at the very least to convey your words and not my own and your ideas and not my own. We want the words that have come from you through your word by your spirit and I ask for your help uh, in this moment. Through Christ we pray. Amen. Uh, the current sermon series we are doing it is the book of Zechariah. I have to laugh because I was talking to a, a pastor friend of mine who I was having dinner with, and he's like, Kurt, what are you guys preaching through this fall? And I said, uh, the book of Zechariah. And he's just like, what are you doing? What are you thinking? And I said, it's actually been amazing, but it's not easy. It's not easy. And today's passage is particularly challenging. So we'll see what happens. 
But anyhow, the theme of this entire book of the Bible is it gets better. It's a very hopeful kind of book, and specifically in connection with the passage that Bill read for us, the title for today's chapter and message is The Sovereign King and Priest. And in thinking about this idea of the sovereign king and priest that God is, uh, we often talk about sovereignty in light of a sovereign nation state. Sovereign nation state. For example, what nation do we live in? Canada. There you go. And yes, we have ties historically to Britain. We have some commonwealth ties, but we also have strong economic ties and economic relationship with America. However, uh, we are a sovereign state, and so as a sovereign nation called Canada, we generally call our own shots, we make our own decisions, we possess the power as a nation to generally chart our own course. Granted, if we try to do something nuts, something crazy, like attack America, would that go well for us? Uh, let's say we want to test missiles over Russia, would that go well for us? Would this actually happen? Probably not. So there is a sort of a checks and balances kind of thing that restrains us from doing something nuts like that. But at the end of the day, Canada is a sovereign nation. We make our own decisions going the way that we generally want to go. And similarly, the God of the Bible is sovereign. He makes his own independent decisions. He goes the way that he wants to go. But here's the difference. And the distinction is with God, he is the ultimate supreme sovereign ruler of the universe. No one tells God what to do. No one can successfully cram God's style or cramp his style. No one gets in God's way. Uh, no one in no circumstance can successfully circumvent what God desires to, to accomplish. Now, if you think about it, that's a lot of power. You would be right. And, and this is how the Bible describes our great God. And my mission today is to show you that God's sovereignty is not something for you to, to freak out at or, or somehow try to resist or be alarmed by, but that God's sovereign rule over the universe actually can bring you, bring me, bring us a, a sense of, of calmness, a sense of, a sense of peace, a sense of quiet trust and hope and relief. So we're going to look at this idea. In addition, we're going to look at this idea of how Jesus is our great high priest, and we'll dive into this. And so let's get into our text for today. Like I said, this is going to be challenging. We'll see where this goes, but I pray that something is, is challenging and helpful for you in some way. Our text for today is chapter 6 of Zechariah, and if you look at verses 1 through 8, you will see the first of two visions that God gives Zechariah. He is the prophet of God. He is sent, and his job is to foretell God's message to God's people. And the first vision kind of goes like this. This is a, a bit of a familiar uh, one for Zechariah. If you look back at chapter 1, Zechariah there, he sees four horsemen, the four watchmen. But this time, Zechariah sees something in addition to the horsemen. He sees uh, four chariots being driven by four drivers. And there's four colors of these four different chariots and horses. One has red horses, one black, one white, and one with dappled color. A Bible scholar with the last name of Luck, I couldn't find his first name, but he says this about these different colors of these horses and what they might possibly mean. And I quote, In the usual scriptural symbolism, red speaks of war, black of famine and death, white of victory, and grizzled, which is the dappled color, of pestilence. So 
these are pretty scary sort of colors in, in which they may symbolize things of war and, and of difficulty and judgment. And, and if you think these horses are intimidating, the chariots that they were pulling were, the, were very intimidating. They, those chariots in ancient times were the ultimate fighting machines, okay? They were kind of like modern-day tanks and how devastating tanks can be in modern-day warfare. Well, chariots were devastating in ancient warfare because, you see, chariots were light. Uh, they were fast. They maneuvered well and very quickly in open country. And because they could move around very quickly, uh, the, the archers that would also be on the chariot could also just basically maximize their shooting radius and do maximum damage to the enemy as they would move around very quickly. Now, are you still with me? Where are these four chariots and these drivers? Where are they going in this vision? What direction? Well, they appear to be coming from and driving out from between two mountains of bronze. And what do these two bronze mountains symbolize? Bible scholars think it symbolizes they are coming out from the entrance of heaven. Isn't that cool? Imagine bronze mountains being at the gate of heaven or the entrance to heaven. And so what this is implying... God is the one sending out these four chariots from his presence to do his will and to do a job for God. Interestingly, Solomon's temple, okay, this is back in the Old Testament. There was a temple where God's people worshiped God. And Solomon's temple had two bronze pillars at the very entrance of the temple as well. And the temple, in its very layout, represented heaven and the presence of God. So that's the connection here with these two bronze mountains. This is God's presence that they are coming out from to do a job for God. Now, so I've laid out the visual aspect of this vision. And you're thinking, what in the world is going on here? Well, Zechariah, you'll be encouraged to know, was asking the very same thing. Because he's asking the angel, like, what is going on? I have no idea what the message is from, from God here. And so that's what I'm thinking when I first read this. Well, the angel explains things a little better. And let me paraphrase what the angel says to Zechariah in his explanation. He is saying, these four char chariots have just been in God's presence. They are leaving heaven to do a job. And the job they are being sent to do is to go in all four directions, north, south, east, and west, to patrol and also to assert God's sovereign power and his authority and his control over all the earth to dominate God's enemies. Let me point out, if you're still with me, one other thing that will help this make a little more sense. Look at verse 8 if you have it in front of you. Verse 8 says, Those who go toward the north country have set my spirit at rest in the north country. Sounds a little strange, but here's what this likely means. Let me ask you, from what direction, if you know biblical history, and it's okay if you don't, from what direction have God's enemies come down upon Israel and Judea? The direction they commonly come down from is from the north, all right? The great white north for them. And so Assyria swooped down onto Israel uh, from the north. Babylon also came down from the north to attack Judea and Jerusalem. And then after that, God sovereignly, he, he defeated and caused Assyria to go under when Babylon, he caused Babylon to defeat Assyria, and then the Persians defeated Babylon. Okay, that's kind of how it worked. And then Persia once... Persia, I don't know if I said that right or not, Persia defeats Babylon, okay? God's people were in captivity to Babylon for 70 years, but then Persia takes over Babylon, and then Persia, King Darius, sends 
King Cyrus, I believe, sends Israel back to their home. They can go back, rebuild Jerusalem. All right. And so now all of this has been done. All of this has been accomplished. God's spirit is now at rest. He's done what he's set out to do. God's army, the chariots, they've accomplished God's sovereign plan here. It's done. He's at rest. That brings us to point number one as we try to bring this home to our 21st century day lives. Okay, here's, number, here's the point. Trust in God's sovereign and kingly rule over the whole world, over all human history. And I'll, I'll explain this. You may have noticed, you know, I try not to watch the news as often as I did. I try to watch the news just enough to, to have some sense of what's going on in the world, because if I seclude myself, yes, I would be happier, but I'd be deluded, okay? So anyhow, I don't know what you feel, how you feel about that. So anyhow, in the media, there's a lot of fear and a lot of uncertainty about our world today. Have you noticed this? Following our recent federal election, with yet another major oil company leaving Canada, you know, that's stoking a lot of fears, and I'm not saying whatever my opinion is, it doesn't matter, I'm just saying what's happening. But there's some fears being stoked about Canada's economy and maybe the, the economy eventually going down or collapsing and then our social programs that we love so much sometimes possibly collapsing. And there's fear and paranoia around that. Uncertainty. Then we have Brexit. You may have followed Brexit. Britain's trying to pull out of the EU and all the hullabaloo in and around Britain these days. All right, then we have, we have let's talk about America. We can't leave America out of the picture, can we? And there's a potential impeachment of of Donald Trump, and, and people are worrying about how that might affect the balance of power in the world. And then we've got the cultural, the culture wars, and we've got culture, cultural battles in and around gender and sexuality and abortion. And, and then should we bring up what many are now calling the climate emergency? Have you heard about this? Greta Thunberg came to downtown Vancouver, the, the arts gallery, and 12 to 15,000 Vancouverites came to hear her speak. Uh, and share her message, trying to sound the environmental alarm bell. So there's a lot going on in the world today. And the world is a confusing mess, really. There's conflict, there's, there's trouble, there's uncertainty. Where is human history going? Should I, should I live in absolute fear and paranoia about all that's going wrong in the world today? And what's the answer? Should we live in a perpetual state of paranoia and fear? No, we should not. Because you see, behind all of these uncertainties, all of these fears that we have, behind all of that and over and above all of that is God. He is the sovereign ruler of the universe. He is the maker of all things. He is the one holding our universe together as a sustainer of all things. He is the director of the grand, grand drama of human history. Meaning, he's in control. He's in control. It's all serving his purpose in some way. He's in control. I love this quote from Charles Spurgeon. He shows us the power of trusting in God's sovereignty. And he says, The sovereignty of God is the pillow upon which the child of God can rest his head at night, giving perfect peace. Isn't that beautiful? In other words, you can sleep at night. Even when you don't get an extra hour, you can sleep at night when you trust in God's good and overarching plan for the world. You don't understand it all. In fact, you don't understand a whole lot of it. But you understand one key thing, that he's over and above all. And he's good. 
If you're in Christ, if you're a Christian, God is for you. He is not against you. In fact, God doesn't want anyone to be outside of His plan. He wants all to come to repentance. He is for you. He is not against you. And as a Christian, in particular, your future with Jesus, it is good. It is fully, completely secure. You've got nothing to worry about. Did you know that worrying as a Christian is its kind of like oil and water. It doesn't. Of course we worry. We, we struggle. But we don't have to. Let me be clear. I hope I am not... I hope you're not hearing, okay, Kurt, now I can just disengage from the world. All right? I don't have to do anything about the world. Just wash my hands of it and just close my eyes to what's going on and just wait for heaven. Am I suggesting that? No, I'm not suggesting you disengage from the world. We have a mission. Our mission is to make the world a better place, in particular with the mission of Jesus, to help people meet Jesus, be transformed by him. I'm, the main message I'm saying to you, and I hope I'm, you're hearing this, trust. That's the message. Trust. Trust, child of God, rest upon God like your head rests upon your pillow at night. And one of my favorite places, the older I get, is when my head hits the pillow and I can rest. And let's do this spiritually. It is a good thing. Experience the peace from the Prince of Peace. You need it. I need it. We need it in this uncertain, very hysterical world in which we live. Let me bring this point in for a landing. Just like God accomplished his good and perfect holy will with Israel back in the day, in and around 500 BC with Zechariah and God's people, rebuilding the temple, rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And then God defeated Israel's enemies. He brought them home to, to, uh, to, the, to rebuild their lives in peace. Well, in the same way, God is orchestrating human history in such a way that in the end, yes, he will judge his enemies and he will bring his family home to build a life with God and with his people in a place of peace, you see, in the new heavens and the new earth in our future. And so I say, trust, trust, trust. As you trust, it might be the very best mental health exercise that you do today. It very well will be the best mental health exercise that you do today. Trust, trust, trust. Let's move on. I want to look at the second vision that God gives to Zechariah. And this is a little harder to sort of get our heads around, so let's work on this together. Verses 9 to 15, if you have that in front of you. And here in this second vision, uh, we see the Lord telling Zechariah, Zechariah, select three specific and wealthy, likely wealthy exiles. These are guys and families that have arrived from Babylon back to Jerusalem. All right, And these guys have some money. It seems they have silver and they have gold. That was the currency back then. And because these guys have some money, silver and gold, the Lord tells Zechariah, okay, melt that silver and gold down. And with that melted down silver and gold, make a crown out of it. And then place that crown upon the head of Joshua. You may remember this man named Joshua. He's the high priest uh, of God. He is mentioned in chapter 3. So make a, a crown for this high priest that you guys have here. Now, you need to know that this would have been crazy talk in, <laughs> for God's people to hear. I mean, priests in Israel were never made kings, and kings were never made priests. And that happened once, and it went bad for that king, by the way. He tried to act as priest. It went bad. didn't go well. All right, so they had the separation of church and state, if you will, kind of thing. And, and so this idea of making Joshua 
this, this priestly king was, was weird. Now, keep that in the back of your mind for a second. So Joshua is crowned as this kind of priestly king here. And the Lord says, well, through Joshua's leadership, the temple will be rebuilt again. In fact, this Joshua is going to be like a, like a branch, like a tree branch. You might recall the term branch being used in chapters uh, previously in Zechariah. So Joshua will be this branch, a kind of branch. He branches out. He's branching out to do what God wants him to do, to build a temple, to rule as a priest king, and then peace will come in and swoop in over the land. All right? Peace will be on the land, and it will be good. And, and, and the Lord finishes with this challenge, this vision with a challenge for God's people. Diligently obey the voice of the Lord if they want to see this amazing vision come to pass and come to reality. Now, as I've mentioned before in this sermon series, many of the Lord's visions, this is going to get technical, so bear with me, many of these visions that God gives to Zechariah, they have a partial aspect and a total fulfillment aspect. Partial fulfillment aspect and a total fulfillment. In other words, there's a nearer term prophetic angle here. that Something's going to happen in the near term, but also at the same time, something's going to happen in the longer term. Does that kind of make sense? Short-term aspect, long-term aspect. And the shorter-term aspect of this prophecy was that indeed Joshua becomes a high priest for God's people. He may have acted in some ways as a kind of king in some of his duties in the coming years. The temple, it was indeed rebuilt. Captives did indeed keep returning from Babylon to help get the job done, get that temple built. And sure enough, peace came on over the land. Things were good as they obeyed the Lord. But here's the more powerful side of this vision that's important for us today. And this is the, the more total fulfillment, longer-term aspect of this prophecy. Because you see, the first thing I want to share with you is, what is Jesus' name when translated into Hebrew? What's the Hebrew proper Hebrew name for Jesus? It's Joshua. Joshua is, this, is his name. Jesus is the Greek, okay, if I can explain this, Jesus, the name Jesus is the Greek, all right, then English translation of Joshua, just to really confuse you. But is that a coincidence that this Joshua happens to be the same name of the coming Savior? I think not, because as I mentioned, it was weird for Israel to hear about a priest and king. Two roles were just never placed together. But in Jesus, you see, do you see, they come together perfectly. Jesus is the king of kings, and Jesus is also the great ultimate high priest who shed his own blood on the cross to bring God and humanity together to make things right. And that brings us to number two in your notes, if you're following along. Jesus is the ultimate priest king we need. He's the ultimate priest king. Let me explain this further. Here's what happens with a lot of people. I see it all the time. They try to become their own priest king, whether they're Christians or not. It's not, it's not good. They know, I've, I've sinned against God. They feel some guilt about living apart from God and doing things they should not have been doing, disobeying God. They feel terrible about some of those things. And then as a result, they attempt to, to atone for their wrong actions by self-atoning in their own strength. And they try to, to don these figurative priestly garments. And they try to become their own priest. And they start trying to do good deeds for God. Let's, I'm going to try to impress God. 
earn brownie points with God. I'm going to try to do as much good toward other people as I can. I'm going to also work harder than I've ever worked hard before. I'm going to try to do, do basically do better in every aspect of my life to earn my way back to God that I might make myself acceptable to Him, to earn my way into heaven, to atone for my sins. Now, is this a good thing to do? No, it is not. It is pointless. Because you see, not only are you trying to act as your own high priest, but you are also acting as your own king. Because you think, you think it all depends on you to save you. It all depends on you to make yourself acceptable to God. It all depends on you to, to make everything in your life right. And when it's all, you think it all depends on you, who is at the center of all your thinking? It's you. You are acting as king of your life. You are acting as queen of your life. And the bottom line is, it doesn't work. Only Jesus can save you. Only Jesus can change you at the deepest level. Because only He has atoned for your sins. Only Jesus can make you right and acceptable before God. Only Jesus Christ can make you clean of all your sins before God. Look at Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12, uh, 14 to 16. It says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, that last part is truly amazing. Because of your faith and trust in Jesus, I'm trusting as, as my priest king, I can confidently draw near to God's heavenly throne and draw near with confidence to receive the mercy and grace I need anytime I need it, and I need it every day, multiple times a day. But that's yours as well as a Christian. And that's only there. That access to God is only there because of Jesus, your high priest. He is the only one who has made you acceptable or can make you acceptable in God's sight. He's the only one who can make adoption into God's family possible for you. And then, because of Jesus, you become his precious son, his precious daughter, folded into the family of God forever. You know, I can't say it enough. I can't say it enough. If all I did most every Sunday was get up here and just share the news of the cross and what Christ did for you and then just say, you need Jesus. You need Jesus. You need Jesus. If that's all I said, that would pretty much be job done. And so do you hear that? If you've forgotten, I'm saying, I'm reminding you, you need Jesus every minute of every day. If you're new to Christianity, I'm saying you need Jesus every minute of every day. Come to Him. Come to Him. Trust in Him. I want to move on to a third way to, that I believe God challenges us with a, another point. And this is number three in your notes if you're following along. Simply, come help build the temple slash church. We're going to switch gears here for a bit. Come help build the temple slash church. Uh, Jared, you may remember a couple Sundays ago, Jared came. He's our church planter resident, planting a new church in uh, Pitt Meadows area. And he came here and he preached as we sent them off and kicked them out of the nest to, to go plant another church. And uh, But he talked about this idea that the church, the local church, both locally and also globally, the big C church, little C church, the church is now God's temple. 
We are God. The temple is a bunch of people with God at the foundation. Let me explain. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. It says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? Why and how are we able to experience the great privilege of being God's temple as a church? It's because God is among us. His Spirit dwells in us individually and corporately. We are His temple. And we are the bricks in this temple as people. And the only reason we're His temple is because God is in us and He is among us. What an honor. What a great privilege. We don't deserve this. We don't deserve this at all. Then look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 to 22, which takes us even further. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Here it is, Christ Jesus as being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a, a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And so, as you may know, if you have any idea of construction and how to build buildings and stuff, any good and solid building project, you must have a solid, firm foundation. If you don't have that solid foundation, that building is going to be like the Tower of Pisa, which is, you know, it's on its way over. Okay? You need a cornerstone, which keeps the rest of the building square and firmly in place, not going anywhere. And... The church is the Lord's temple. Who is our cornerstone? Who is our foundation upon which we build? It is Jesus. He is our priest king. And on Jesus we grow more and more into a rising temple of the Lord because it rises. You know why? More and more people are are becoming part of God's temple as they become followers of Jesus and trust in the gospel. And then... We as God's family are a family on mission and we are sent to make disciples, making disciples of Jesus. So our mission is to make more disciples of Jesus so that this temple can keep rising and rising and rising to the end built on the, the cornerstone that is Jesus. So I'm just asking you, I don't know where you're at, just come build the temple with us. Come build the church with us. One life at a time. You know, at one time or another, if all of us, if you go back into all of our past, at some point in our lives, whether it was recently or a long time ago, we were living apart from Christ. We were doing our own thing. You know, Jesus was not king of our lives. All of us, at one point or another, were captive to sin. We were dominated by living lives of disobedience against God. Doing our own thing. Paying no attention to God or His ways. But now, we became a Christian. And if you are a Christian, you've been saved by your priest king. Now Jesus, he commissions you. That's why you're not in heaven yet. We've got jobs to do. A job to do as a family on mission in this neighborhood and city. And our job is to reach out to our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, with the good news about Jesus and to, to display Jesus in our lives and in our words and in our interactions and in our thoughts and say, here's the priest king you need. He's died on the cross to atone for all of your sins. And so he calls us to be a family on mission. And so let us pursue his mission. And in so doing, keep building the temple, the church, together at Mercy Hill. One last point to challenge you with. I don't know where we're at with time. My watch is an hour ahead, so I have no idea what time it is right now. It says 1223. That's not right. 
Um, one last point to challenge you with. Number four in your notes. Are you still with me? Okay, hang in there. Number four is simply diligently obey God's voice. Diligently obey God's voice is the last thing that we see in this chapter. Uh, let me tell you a quick story. It's not all that interesting, but bear with me. Uh, back in my younger days, when I was 16 and 17 years old, uh, you know, at that time, I had a strong desire to not listen to my parents. I was becoming more independent as a young guy, and and um, whatever language my my parents were speaking, I didn't like that language, and it seemed like it was a language of control, and, and uh, the idea of obeying my parents just became passe. I just didn't like that idea of obeying my parents any longer. And as a result, a power struggle ensued. Lots of fighting, okay, verbal fighting. Lots of disrespect towards my parents. Lots of relational conflict. And it was rough. Communication was like this, and when we were communicating, it was hostile. And basically, I only obeyed my parents to the point where, as long as I didn't get kicked out of my house, okay, I'll obey them to that point, because I didn't want to be, you know, build a snow fort and have to live in it, because I lived up in Grand Prairie, Alberta. You don't want to get kicked out of your house in a place like Grand Prairie. Vancouver might be different, but anyhow, that was my thinking. I didn't want to freeze. So this was a very trying time in my life. It was a very trying time in my parents' life. And they're thinking, what is going on with this kid? What's going on? Like, what's your problem? Look at all we've done for you. Well, not long after that time of, you know, pretty extreme conflict, I had a, a personal encounter, a very profound encounter with Jesus. And I repented of my sins, and I trusted in the gospel. And sure enough, I started obeying my parents again. And not with obligation, I wanted, that was the weird part, I wanted to obey my parents. I wanted to honor them. I wanted to listen to them. And I obeyed my parents, not perfectly, but I obeyed them with joy. I wanted to honor them. I wanted, because it's what God would have me do. It's what God would have me do. Here's my point. God calls us to obey His voice. Where do we hear His voice? We hear it primarily in the Bible, in Scripture. And as we regularly ingest God's Word for, for ourselves, we personally read Scripture and engage with it and then pray back the truths and promises. And then we come here together with God's people to hear the, the Bible being preached. All right, so we ingest the Bible on our own, then we ingest the Bible here as we gather on Sundays. Our job is simply to obey what God is telling us to do in Scripture. Look what Jesus says about this in John chapter 14, verse 15. It's not rocket science. I mean, it's, it's so clear. He says, if you love me, if you love me, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So why do we obey Jesus? Because we love him. We're not trying to earn anything. We don't try to obey to get his love or earn brownie points. No, we obey because we're already loved. We're already made his children. We've been given so much. Of course we love him. Of course we obey him. He laid down, God, the Son, laid down his life for us on the cross to atone for our sins as our great high priest. The greatest display of love and self-sacrifice the universe has ever seen. How can I not respond with loving obedience to that? And we fail. But we get back. We get back to it. We get back to it. We repent. We get back to it. Let me close with this. Part of what I pray 
and I've found essential in my personal prayer time with, with Jesus is I ask Jesus to empower me with his Holy Spirit that day, okay? Empower me for joy-filled obedience to you, Jesus, and to your word. So give me the power to obey you out of joy. That's how much of a piece of work I am, do you understand? Well, I'm a real piece of work. And I'm such a piece of work that I have to ask Jesus to help me obey him with joy. It's a near daily prayer, and it helps. And the idea of obeying Jesus because you want to doesn't always happen that way, but generally, that's what you pray for. You ask power for that, and he gives it to you. Obey Jesus out of love. Obey Jesus because of the cross. Obey Jesus, obeying Jesus. You know, if you're wondering, how can I love Jesus? Well, the, the clearest way to love Jesus is simply to obey him, obey his commandments. Primarily, love God and love people. It's the best and clearest way to show that you love him and that you are serving him as your priest king. And so ask Jesus to empower you with his Holy Spirit to then have the ability and the means to obey him and his word with joy out of love. That's all I got. Let's pray. Thank you again for your sacrifice for us. We'd have nothing without you. Without you atoning for our sins, Lord Jesus is our great high priest. We would have nothing but confusion and fear and paranoia without you being the king of kings and the sovereign ruler of the universe. And so, help us to trust that you are in control. Help us to not live in paranoia about the state of the world, but to trust in you and to keep following you and keep trust, keep pursuing your mission. We are so grateful that you've allowed us to become part of your family, adopted in, grafted in. And we're so grateful for the future that you've given us. And we know things will always get better because of you. We love you. We praise you. We worship you for the gospel. And as we come to the Lord's Supper today, we remember and celebrate the gospel. Be with us now. Help us to examine ourselves, to repent of any known sins that we are aware of, to confess those to you and receive your daily mercy and daily grace as we confidently approach your throne. Through Christ we pray. Amen.